baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? Think about your reputation. Trying to meet an expectation. Hey, everybody, welcome to another podcast. Podcast intro, actually. This is the intro. Uh, it's a dismal, rainy day in Vancouver, the way Vancouver's supposed to be. And uh, I'm trying to get back into the swing of things here after a couple of weeks on the road. Um, you know, I came up to Vancouver thinking I was going to write this book, and I've gotten some work done on it, but I've been distracted by a lot of... Um, once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, and I've got this carpe diem attitude toward life that keeps getting in the way of my productivity. But what are you going to do, right? A friend um, that I met at TED, actually a guy, really cool guy, he was assigned to be my chaperone, keep me out of trouble at TED, um, which was a disaster, failure, not his fault, mine. He didn't keep me out of trouble. But uh, anyway, we, we became friends. And um, he invited uh, Kisselda and me to accompany him on sort of a shakedown cruise on his new 130-foot yacht. Yeah, 130 feet. That's like, I think it's three stories. It's got a jacuzzi and a gym and, you know, it's kind of insane. Um and uh, so we joined him here in Vancouver and sailed up the coast to a place called Desolation Sound, which was pretty amazing. It's um, Desolation Sound has the warmest ocean water north of Mexico because of the way the currents work. I mean, you wouldn't think it, but here's this place where I guess it has something to do with like rock that goes from direct sunlight. It sort of juts down into the water and there's something about the currents that the water doesn't circulate that much. So the, the, the heat transmits through the rock into the water. Anyway, you know, you're up here North of Vancouver and it's really comfortable swimming water. I mean, much, much warmer than in L.A., where I just was a couple of days ago, freezing my ass off in Malibu. But anyway, that was incredible. Eight days on this yacht, cruising along the coast, you know, drop the dock in these amazing, uh, the, drop the anchor in these amazing places. Uh, bald eagles everywhere. I'm sure I irritated the Canadians every time I saw a bald eagle. I was like, oh, bald eagle. And, you know, that's kind of like, uh, you know, freaking out every time you see a pigeon in New York, I think. Uh, they were patient, but I, I could tell they weren't as thrilled by the bald eagle sightings as I was. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, Desolation Sound for eight days. That was amazing. And then a friend in New York, uh, you know, I don't have any money, but I've got friends, rich friends for some reason. So, oh, by the way, I should mention, speaking of rich friends, the yacht guy, it's not even evil money. It's He made his money from wind farming. So it's like, you know, guilt-free extravagance. It's amazing. Um, 
you know, it's it's good karma. And then we have this friend in New York who's got an amazing apartment in Midtown, and uh, he wrote to me and said, hey, we're, we're going to be gone for the second half of August if you guys want to come hang in our place. Uh, you know, it's going to be empty. So what are you going to do? So we uh, we booked a flight uh, to New York and and went and spent a week in New York. Um, and I tried to take advantage of the time by interviewing a bunch of interesting people who are in New York. I've been wanting to meet for a long time. People like Betty Dodson, the great she's a shame exorcist you know she's she's been exercising shame since the 60s she's taught uh thousands of women uh how to overcome shame at their own bodies and and uh connect with pleasure and find their clitoris and all that kind of good stuff uh also interviewed uh, cindy gallup who has the uh, Make Love Not Porn site, as well as uh, another site called If We, I think it's called If We Ruled the World, uh, which is sort of a uh, ethical business site. Uh, very interesting woman, interesting story, amazing apartment. Holy shit, her place is like a museum. Uh, also interviewed um, Stanton Peel, the sort of uh, classic, legendary addiction specialist, wrote a book called Love and Addiction in the 70s that's a classic in the field. He's the guy, he's the the main guy who's been arguing against the addiction as disease model, which has uh, sort of swept through the the mainstream thinking of addiction in the last 20, 30 years. He has been the stalwart uh, opponent of that way of looking at addiction. He says, you, if you tell an addict that they have a disease, you're taking away their power to change. And they don't have a disease. It's not like you have cancer or cholera or malaria, something that you can't do anything about it. You know, you can't like will your way to stop having malaria. But uh, addiction, he, he argues, is obsessive behavior, obsessive thinking, and that you, um, a lot of it has to do with uh, an absence of meaning, an absence of substance in one's life, an emptiness that's filled with the ritualistic behavior around addiction, uh, the community that forms around the addiction, and so on. And by by promoting this uh, addiction as disease model, we're really promoting a very uh, an inaccurate understanding of what addiction is, and simultaneously, we're uh, we're robbing people of of a very important source of uh, of power to to get over the addiction so he's a very interesting guy and then um i also interviewed carl hart who's a neuroscientist at columbia university who's sort of um, an up-and-coming voice uh on the addiction scene and uh and he's got some very interesting things to say about drugs um poverty and the way we conflate our um our understanding of how the two things affect uh particularly minority marginalized populations very interesting guy you've probably seen him on if you're interested in this sort of thing if if you've seen uh, the house i live in a recent documentary a fantastic documentary about the war on drugs he was prominent in that He's been in, in a bunch of uh, documentaries recently. He's um, a very interesting guy. He's from sort of uh, the bad bad side of Miami. A lot of the people he grew up with are in prison or dead at this point. Uh, and, you know, he was sort of on that same... 
path and uh through good luck and hard work um he managed to get off that path i think he was in the air force and then got into grad school and some people recognized uh, that he's a very talented researcher and uh so now he's you know he's a black guy, dreadlocks, you know, but he's also a tenured professor at, at Columbia. So he's a guy who occupies different worlds and uh, is doing a really good job in, in bringing people together and, and trying to bridge the gaps between different worlds, different communities. I guess he's a, a shaman in that sense. Um, I was very, very happy to meet with him and, and hang out for a while. So those are all coming up. Uh, in the next couple of months, I'm still dribbling these podcasts out once every two weeks, just because it, it takes me most of a day to produce them. Uh, even though I've got them in the can, it, it takes a bunch of time to put them together. And, uh, I'm trying to work on the book, uh, civilized to death. And, and I've got so many other things happening right now with possible TV stuff and some other projects going on that, um, you know, I can't really, uh, I can't do them every week. So, uh, I appreciate everybody who listens and sends me emails and encouragement and, and, uh, contributions and all the other great support that I get from you. And, uh, I wish I could, honestly, if I were making a living from podcasting, I, I would like drop everything else and just do this. Cause I really enjoy it. I love the I love the chance to meet with these people, hang out. I love the, I, I enjoy producing it. I enjoy, you know, slipping in some music. I'm this, Later this week, I'm going to meet with um, a guy named Justin Ritchie, uh, who has a great podcast called The Extra Environmentalist, which I'd encourage you to check out, extraenvironmentalist.com. Uh, where they do uh, all sorts of uh, interesting stuff. They've got a very... Uh, slick website and and he's gonna help me figure out how to use a soundboard that i bought recently because i want to be able to do three three-way conversations and you know get a little a little slicker with uh, the music and fade in and out and all that kind of stuff um so i'm working on it but uh, i just can't put more time into it than i already am what else can I tell you? Um, you know, I think last time I forgot to thank my one and only sponsor, which is Sure Design T-shirts. You know, sorry, Sure Design T-shirts. You're the best, best T-shirts. I mean, they're fantastic T-shirts. Everyone, we sell these shirts on our site, chrisryanphd.com. My mom ships them out to you. Uh, and uh, they're fantastic. Everybody loves them. The design is by Levi uh, Gre- Levy. Levi. Levi. Yeah, Levi Greenacres. Sorry. That's one of those words that I've lived in Spain so long that I say it in the Spanish way, you know, like levies, the, the jeans, they call levies over there. Another word like that is um, Ikea. And in America, it's Ikea. But I, I don't know. I say it in the Spanish way. I'm not, I'm not trying to be pretentious. It just comes out that way. Uh, anyway, LeviGreenacres.com. He's the, the guy who did the design. Beautiful design. Uh, we kick him a couple bucks for every shirt we sell. So we're supporting uh, our friendly tattoo artist and uh, graphic designer, LeviGreenacres.com. He's got a great book on, on his site that you can buy there or on Amazon.com called, I think it's called Mommy's first tattoo or something like that pretty interesting way to look at things as always excuse me 
as always, many thanks to the great Carsey Blanton for the use of her wonderful song, Smoke Alarm, which is our theme song. Carsey just did a uh, crowdsourced or crowdfunded uh, thing to uh, raise money for her next album and she like blasted through all the targets and i mean now i think she's like raising money to buy herself a yacht i'm not sure what's going on there anyway carcyblanton.com and of course thanks to dustin at feral audio uh you know you can maybe you're listening to this podcast at feralaudio.com uh, but if you're getting on on iTunes or through my site or Stitcher or whatever, you might check out feralaudio.com because they've got a bunch of other podcasts there that are really good, including the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, Harmontown, uh, a bunch of other stuff that's uh, Chelsea Peretti and a bunch of uh, really good podcasts there. So if you're into podcasts, that's a, that's a good place to check out. Okay, what else can I tell you? I've covered the T-shirts, uh, covered that, covered that. All right, this episode, this is a cool episode. I'm, I'm, <laughs> this is an unusual one. This guy, his name's Tim Killian. He's a friend uh, I met a long time ago. I don't remember how the hell we met him, probably through the book. Uh, he, I checked out his blog a few years ago, and he had this funny piece on there about men wearing bags, you know, like a Merce, or I think there was a Seinfeld episode where they call it the European carry-all or something like that. Um, and I've always liked wearing, uh, having a bag to, because I don't like having my pockets full of crap, you know? And since I was traveling around the world for most of my, uh, you know, young adulthood, my twenties and thirties, I always had a shoulder bag, you know, cause you gotta have your essentials. You got your, yeah, I'd have a money belt with my passport and stuff under my pants, right? Um, but uh, but in the shoulder bag, I'd have like a journal. Um, I had my a mini binoculars. I had a little camera, uh, a pen. Uh, what else did I have in there? I had like the stuff that you you could need at any moment, you know, that kind of thing. And I just found in traveling is really good to have that. So you don't have to think every time you, you, you know, go for a walk or something, you don't need to think like, oh, do I have my camera? Do I have this? Do I have that? It's all in one place. Boom, you're done. Um, and I kind of like miss that, you know, and but you get back into the city life and it's like, oh, yeah, you got your pockets, you got your wallet, you got your this and that. And then you, and then you come home and you dump it all out on a table somewhere. It's nice just to have a bag. Anyway, I read his his thing about uh, carrying a bag and how it freaks people out. And, you know, the, it uh, sort of leads to questions about gender roles and stereotypes and, you know, who who can carry bags and who can't and all that. And it was a very funny piece. Uh, you'll hear us talk about it in the in the podcast. Uh, I think it's moreperfect.com is, is the name of his, uh, is the URL. And I noticed recently uh, Joe Rogan, <laughs> Joe Rogan, who's like, you know, famous for not giving a fuck, uh, decided that fanny, ba- what are they called? Fanny packs? Fanny packs are cool. So he, he went and got himself a fanny pack and now he's selling fanny packs on his website. <laughs> I mean, I'm cool with the shoulder bag, right? I mean, I honestly, the shoulder bag to me goes back to old episodes of Kung Fu with Kwai Chang Kane, you know, walking around the West barefoot with his shoulder bag. Fanny packs, yeah, I don't know. I might not, I might come down on the other side of that one. <laughs> don't tell don't tell Rogan I said that though. Uh 
Yeah, we cover a lot of shit in this episode. I just listened to it last night. I mean, you know, Tim is a very interesting cat. He he makes his own sparkling water. We talk about nitrous oxide. He's a political consultant who is very interested in uh, supporting and representing uh, what we would call the sort of more um, uh, subversive elements in society. So he's like a big supporter of strip clubs and marijuana reform. Uh, he was very important um, behind the scenes player in the successful campaign to um, to legalize marijuana in Washington State. Uh, very recently so he's he's like a very you know he's a great soldier in the causes that uh, i and i'm sure most of you uh, support but you meet the dude he's the straightest looking guy you'll ever meet he and he's perfect in that sense you know because he's the guy who shows up at the meeting with the other political consultants and the congressmen and whatever and he's completely the way he looks he's completely unthreatening to those people but of course his ideas are uh, are more subversive he talks a lot about mormonism he was born into a mormon family raised in uh in mormonism went off and did his missionary work in puerto rico uh and then had a crisis of faith and he's very candid and and open-hearted in in talking about that um so anyway it's a very wide-ranging conversation and which i really enjoyed uh he's a he's a good friend and i hope you'll enjoy it as much as i did so enjoy the podcast and i'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks thanks for listening Podcast listeners, it's an overcast day in Seattle, and I'm here with Tim Killian drinking home sparkled water. I didn't even, until two minutes ago, I didn't know you could sparkle your own water, but here we are. That's what I do. I sparkle my own water. It's (laughs) the new bootlegging. This episode will be all about how to sparkle your own water. (laughs) (laughs) The step-by-step process. (laughs) So how does one, uh, like, are you a sparkling water aficionado? I'm joking. This won't be the whole episode, but let's let's cover this. I found myself about five years ago drinking so much of it that there's a product on the market now called soda stream that you buy and it's easy and yeah. and uh so that's what i do i'm fine is it um nitrous oxide that you're pumping in there uh co2 they're co2 cartridges uh-huh. i um, think you should do the nitrous though uh, you know it could change if, your life if i could infuse nitrous in the water that could <laughs> and drink it i would probably do that did you ever, <laughs> I haven't have you ever had nitrous yet. at the dentist or anything it, you know it's a funny story actually it's it's nitrous is actually probably my favorite drug and if i Me too. if i could in in the 18th century did, i don't know if you knew this that a lot of philosophers were using nitrous it was it became yeah, uh, the drug of philosophy william james yeah, was a big exactly. nitrous user yeah 
And uh, I've always wanted to date a hygienist, <laughs> but it's never worked out. It's never. You just hang. You got to go to a convention, I think, like a, a dental hygienist hygienist convention. That must be a rocking party. Yeah. Um, I knew a guy in Spain, a dentist that I met one night at a happy hour at the American Society, which is like a sort of like a an offshoot of the. What's it called? The Chamber of Commerce. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got them all over the world. Right. So it's sort of a networking thing for business people. But in Barcelona, it was just basically a bunch of drunks and flirts, I sure. think, you know. So it was Wednesday nights, and we would all go for cut-price drinks. And I met this guy, and he said he was a dentist. And the first thing I said was, can you get me nitrous? And he was like, you're my kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's – you know, I, I, I actually went through this period where I was go- – I was <sighs> – I make them give me nitrous when I just have cleanings, just because I enjoy it so much. Like it's it's a way to let go, and yeah. you know, I so yeah, well, yeah. It's that's about the extent of my illicit drug. Well, well that and, and scotch. And it doesn't. I mean, and especially. I mean, the danger of nitrous is that you know these kids who fill up balloons or whatever and you know tape them to their face, you pass out and then you don't get any oxygen. Right. So it's, you can suffocate because you're not getting oxygen. The nitrous is bonding to the hemoglobin or whatever. But, you know, you mix it with air, there's no brain damage. There's no, yeah. as far as I'm, I know, there's no yeah. uh, downside to yeah, it. Right. If, Other than possible asphyxiation. If you're, like, there's strapping no, shit to no your brain face. Damage yeah. or, or you're, like, a dumbass standing up in front of a glass table and you do a face plant into the table. Right, you know, exactly. sit down on right. a sofa. And, and um, again, all this, you know, when we talk, it, it cracks me up because when people talk about drug use, for some reason, we always ignore the fact that alcohol is drugs and, uh, and you know, coffee. and and more dangerous yeah. um, than most of what we certainly in terms of toxicity. Yeah, absolutely. Very much. Yeah. And the other thing about nitrous is you can be like blasted into the stratosphere and three minutes later, you're absolutely right. normal and can drive and can operate heavy equipment. You know, exactly. it's uh, yeah. Yeah. So in many ways, it's a far superior drug. If you want to experience some crazy effect and then be able to answer the phone when your wife calls in five minutes, you yeah. know, or anyway, not that I'm advocating <laughs> drug use. This of course is, not. this is an adult, uh, not safe for work unless you're wearing headphones, adults only kind of podcast. So we can say what we want, I think. Yep. I'll get back to you after the first lawsuit. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we'll get angry writers writing in. Yeah. Advocating. Uh, yeah. Use, so. Well, you know, that's what happened recently with Ted. Somebody gave a Ted talk where he talked about um, uh, his name's Graham, Graham Hancock. He's a well known author. And he gave a, a talk. Uh, it, ironically, where he talked about how using one drug, ayahuasca, had helped him kick the habit of using another drug, marijuana, obsessively for years and years. And uh, they pulled it down from the TED site because it appeared that he was advocating the use of ayahuasca. Right. Which he wasn't. He was just saying it helped me, you know. A couple of sessions with ayahuasca, and it turns out there's there's a growing body of research showing that uh, ayahuasca and some other hallucinogens, um, particularly iboga, which is from Africa, a root of ibogaine plant, or I guess ibogaine is the substance and iboga is the plant, uh, w- just one session uh, has a very high 
uh, cure rate for heroin addicts. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, yeah, I've done a lot of work in this. I don't know. If oh, I, oh no! I, didn't I don't know, know if that. you knew that my my start in in politics was I ran the medical marijuana campaigns here in Washington State in the mid '90s and got medical marijuana passed oh, here. No, and, I didn't uh, know that. For many years, did a lot of work in the drug reform movement. And, right. Um, have dealt with issues like uh, pain management that we don't do well in our culture because um, we're afraid people get addicted. Yeah, people uh, with terminal illness. Even the the difficulty we've had of. Um, Putting methadone clinics in that yeah. that help heroin addicts right. uh, kick their habits, needle exchange, pain, things like that. Yeah, it's just ridiculous how we approach some of this stuff. But yeah. you know, uh, we're—I don't know if you knew—but we passed um, a form of, of legalization of marijuana here in, in last November. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Hopefully, we're we're moving down a road towards a more sane policy. Did you work on that uh, campaign? Um, I I did not specifically work on that campaign, but I knew everybody who did and had been part of the discussion for a number of years leading up to that. Um, right. So, well, let, before we get get into this too deep, let me do a little introduction. Uh, I met you. Where? How did I meet you? At, at some. I think you talk? did a book reading here uh, reading. at one point, and uh, we had communicated by email. Oh, and, uh, right. Right. You were working in the city government at that point, Uh, I think. At that time, I think I was in the mayor's office. Right. Uh Right. Yeah, and you immediately struck me as that extremely rare creature of someone who's up to his neck in politics but is uh, cool and open-minded and not disconnected from reality. Yeah, you know, politics, I've, I've worked in politics for about 15 years. And for me, though, it's always been... Um, I pick and choose the issues that I want to work on and the things that I want to do. I don't, I, I, on some level, politics is a career, but it's actually more of a passion than a career. And so, because of that, I've never just hung a shingle and said, hire me for whichever issue you want. And, and I've, uh, I've gotten a certain reputation as the political consultant who will work on the difficult issues. Uh-huh. Um, so, I started with in the drug issue. I ran a referendum in the uh, city of Seattle to overturn some laws that would have shut down the strip clubs in Seattle. Um, so I've done a lot of work that for most traditional political consultants, they would be afraid to take. Um, and why both. is that? Oh, you know, I mean, Paul, why, why are you attracted to them? Uh, t- to me, what you know, with the marijuana thing, for example, it, I, um, I got involved with that through my brother who was a doctor, um, primarily AIDS patients, and oh. he had very practical um, understanding of its its efficacy in certain yeah. situations. But for me, and what I've done in politics is I actually am really motivated to fight for uh, those issues that have been pushed to the margins of society. I, I find it uh, really compelling that uh, freedom, I think, is best defended there. So that's sort of been my, my focus. And, for example... Um, the referendum I ran, it was in 2006 in Seattle on the strip clubs. Uh, to me, just like marijuana, I'm, I'm not a marijuana smoker, but I saw a principal involved there. Strip clubs, a lot of people feel um, one way or another. But to me, again, the further we try and push sexua- sexuality into the closet, uh, as you know, um, I think it's more damaging. And so I, I'm always looking for issues that um, I think the public is ready to move forward on, but which... 
might be considered a, a bit taboo. And I, I love figuring out how to message that mm. to a mainstream audience and figure out a way to move forward in a more rational approach on issues. So you're a, in terms of if you did hang at a shingle, what would it say? Political consultant? So I do have my own company. I call it um, Killian Strategic. I do strategic communications, part of which is uh, – I say political consulting. I do some mix of lobbying work. Um, I do some work uh, uh, ongoing with the strip clubs now as they need help in the various locales dealing with zoning issues or harassment issues or, um, you know, various things that they deal with when they try and open or maintain a club in a, in a city. Mm. Um, I'll help them approach city government if they need to do that. Uh, approach police departments if they're being harassed um, unfairly. Do you have a legal background? No, I always thought I'd go to law school. I ended up not doing it, and I actually am glad I didn't. But um, I do a lot of legal work. So uh, for about four years, it just ended last year, I was on what's called the Washington State Sentencing Guidelines Commission. I think I was one of maybe two non-lawyers on the commission, um, but I've been heavily involved with uh, the drafting of law, um, legislation, uh, and really like the legal work from that aspect, but um, didn't necessarily want to be a lawyer per se. So I get to do, I get to pretend I'm a lawyer a lot, um, and I don't have all the ethics rules that they have to deal with, so that works well. That's nice. It's Another thing you and I have in common, I, I get to pretend I'm an academic and don't go to faculty meetings. It's wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I'm currently an adjunct professor. and I get Oh, to, you're more of an academic than I am. I get to pretend a little bit, but, uh, yeah. you know. The other thing you and I have in common is that I think we're both uh, innately subversive, but we look safe. Absolutely. You even more than me, probably. <laughs> I, I uh, recently I grew my hair much longer, uh, and that was because my ex-girlfriend, her husband, and Casilda, my wife, one night all ganged up on me and said, listen, dude, you know, you look so straight. You yeah. look so, you know, almost like a soldier. Right. You know, I was getting these $5 haircuts from the Pakistani guy down the street, and it was great. I mean, he gave five, $5 hair, five euro haircut with tip, which included him singing Pakistani mountain songs, uh, you know, trimming nose hair with the scissors that was like halfway to your brain, and uh, a head massage. I mean, how can you go wrong with that? Why would I pay 30 bucks to some. You know, right? Uh, hair consultant, you know. But anyway, they they all convinced me I should grow my hair longer and and look more the part of the subversive writer. You know, guy. it's fun. It's fun. I this is an issue I think that comes up a lot. Sometimes I say in Seattle though, when I wear a suit, I'm being punk. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you can become counterculture in different ways in different contexts. Yeah. Well, I've always thought the most dangerous soldier is the one who wears camouflage. Right? You don't want to walk around with your epaulets shining, you know? Or the guy who blends into the crowd, that's the one you got to watch out right, for. Right, right, right. Absolutely. People declaring themselves yeah. in their hairstyle and their clothing. Yeah, it, you know, and I've actually sometimes wrestled with, you know, because in, in many ways the ethic of my life would is subversive uh, to mainstream culture. But the aesthetic of my life sometimes, is, you know, I just don't. I'm not drawn to, I have one tattoo, but I'm not drawn to, 
you know, be filled with tattoos. Tramp stamp? I, I, no, I don't have a tramp stamp. It's, <laughs> you know, I'm working up to that. <laughs> well, it's, it's not visible. It's, it, you know, it's on my ankle, so I can, oh, okay. I can cover it up. But right. I, I'm not opposed in any way. A lot of my friends are, are fully sleeved with tattoos, and I hang out and am comfortable in those worlds, right. but it's just not who I am. Right. Um, and, you know, I do have the added benefit of, again, being able to work on political issues in a way um, that sometimes I'm able to bridge some gaps between people, yeah. and, and I really enjoy doing that. Well, you, that's something that probably comes naturally to you. You're, you're someone who's moved between worlds quite a bit, both Absolutely. professionally and personally. Yep. Um, you know, when I first got to Spain, this was 89, late 89, I think, and decided to stay in Barcelona and look for a job. Um, I went to a department store to buy a white shirt and a tie to, for job interviews because I, I wasn't planning to look for a job. I was just sort of traveling, and one thing led to another. I, actually, I got robbed, and while I was waiting for a new passport, someone offered me a place to stay and, you know, whatever. So thing, one thing led to another, and I went to this big department store called the uh, Corte Inglés, and I bought a white shirt. I was just there, by the way. Barcelona, yeah. yeah Corte oh, you went to Corte Inglés? Oh, it was all over the place. Yeah, yeah, they're everywhere. So. Um, anyway, I bought this uh, white shirt, I, and I spoke very little Spanish at the time, so I was sort of flying blind, couldn't really read the label very, in much detail. Uh, when I opened the shirt, it was a short-sleeved white shirt, and I had a black tie. I don't know why I bought a black tie. So... I was wearing this white shirt, short sleeve shirt, button down shirt with a black tie, going to different schools and talking to people. And people kept asking me if I was a Mormon. Mm. Apparently, there there were a lot of Mormon. Um, and I was the even short sleeve white shirt gives you away, <laughs> and the short hair and the white skin. And the, I was sitting in a bar having a beer and the bartender asked me if I was a Mormon and I was like dude you, you know you, you don't know much about Mormons do you you just lack the name tag that's all you <laughs> yeah, needed exactly I needed a name tag yeah so which uh, by way of that you know we can segue into your background so you were raised in a Mormon family I did I grew up Mormon yeah and uh, was all in until I was about all 26 in. years old all in full blooded Mormon absolutely so was that were you raised in Utah no I grew up here just outside Side of Seattle. Oh, okay. Uh, but I went to school at Utah. I graduated from Brigham Young University. Uh, and what did you study there? Uh, I did marketing communications at the time. What was that like? What percentage of the student body is Mormon? Uh, 98, 99%. Oh, really? uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, I've, I've actually had to unpack the experience of that um, in subsequent years. I think while I was there, you know, I never considered going anywhere else. I, uh, in fact, at one point, I almost got a football scholarship to play there, and I probably could have had a scholarship to play at a smaller university, but I never considered, growing up Mormon, I never considered going anywhere else. That was all, you know, really? that's what you do right. um, when I grew up in the church was you go to BYU, and it's all I wanted to do. Um, and it was a pretty unique experience. And there's, in many ways, it's a really interesting university. If you imagine... Uh, the uh, when I was there, I think the po- student population was just over thirty thousand students. But imagine that a large percentage of them have gone on missions and um, have had cultural experience in another country and speak another mm-hmm. language. So you're on campus and you can be uh, involved or l- listening to multiple languages at any given time um, and interacting with people who've 
sort of broken uh, away from America, at least for a short period of time, um, and experienced another culture. And so there were things that I really liked about BYU. So it's typical to do your your two-year missionary stint before university? So at that time, this just changed last year, but at that time, uh, as a as a male missionary, you'd go at age 19. So I went to one year BYU before I went on a mission, which was this really awkward thing. And they, they fixed this last year, but my freshman year, and this was typical of BYU freshmen is that, uh, academics weren't the focus because you knew you were going to be gone, uh, for a couple of years following that. So I had to make up for that when I returned. Where did you go? I I went to Puerto Rico. Uh Spent two years in Puerto Rico, learned Spanish. Um, wow. Was a mission. And how, how is that? Do you get to choose where you go or is no. that assigned to you? It's assigned to you. And you how, get no how is it? Is it a lottery or do they look at your interests? You know, there's a lot of you – know, the church is very closed about everything they do, and there's a lot of speculation on how these things happen. But at the time, you believe that you're uh, you're called to where God wants you and that the church has been inspired to send you uh, to a certain place. So, right. Um, but they don't reveal exactly how they uh, choose that. You do take, as you're preparing, uh, you take a test on language aptitude uh-huh. to see how well you can learn a new language. Right. Um, again, I don't, I don't believe you get the results of that even. Um, but then you're you're given a calling, and most Mormons believe that this is inspired of God where you right. go. And so when you, obviously when you went to BYU and I guess when you went to Puerto Rico, you were fully believing you were. Yeah, I was, I I believed everything. Um, I still considered myself, you know, I've always been intellectually curious. So for me at the time, um, in fact, uh, growing up here in, uh, I grew up in a little town called Issaquah, Washington, even though it wasn't the center of Mormonism, it was the center of one thing. And that was at the time in the eighties, the most prolific anti-Mormon author, uh, had been excommunicated from my ward and, and was headquartered in, in Issaquah. And so when I grew as a kid, I grew up having to defend Mormonism in a very real way on the really? school bus and, and classes on the recess where kids um, would have in their churches heard things about my religion and were, you know, challenging me or accusing me of certain things. So you didn't go to a Mormon high school? No, I went to a public high school. Uh I think I was one of 10 Mormons in my class of 400. But so I used, you know, my intellectual curiosity at that time was really satisfied in in apologetics, figuring out how to defend my belief um, from other uh, kids. Um, wow. And I, Excellent training for politics. It's, it, it taught me a lot. Like yeah. it was, um, that was really my first entree into sort of figuring out how to intellectualize something. And I've always been on that path, and I would say I've never broken with that path uh, today. Right. So. Yeah, that's very interesting. So you you were sort of thrust into the position of defending a minority view exactly in the most unforgiving environment ever which is a school bus on the way yeah. to or from a high school absolutely in yeah. fact i've thought even though i i left mormonism in 1992 i've long thought it would be interesting to write a book called um uh, something w- along the the lines of this title, Mormons are crazy with crazy and big uh, letters. And then underneath saying, but so is your religion. Right. Because a lot of people, even today, I encounter, um, 
I often feel like I get this response of, oh, you grew up in one of the crazy religions. <laughs> um, as though Catholicism, just because it's got a larger number, yeah. isn't filled with things that are, you yeah. know, um, what, you know, and I'm, I know I'm using the word crazy here, but, um, you know, all religions. Unbelievable, are, ridiculous, right. fairy tales. And all, I, was, I was thinking about this very thing on the way down. I was thinking, okay, you know, what are we going to talk about? I thought, well, I'd like to talk about Mormonism, but I want to make it clear when I, when we do that I'm not being disrespectful because I think one of the things about Mormonism that, uh, that, that is, a, is a problem is that it's so recent. So you read the stuff about, you know, John Smith, Joseph, Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith mm-hmm. and the, 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 you know, the golden tablets and the, the little peeping stones or whatever they were called that allowed him right. to read ancient Egyptian or whatever. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm messing no, this all right. up. But got a, I've got a vague sense, you know, and the, the angels and the right. lost tribes of this and that. It's all a bunch of obvious bullshit. But as you say, so is Christianity. Right. So is Islam's. So, so you know, it's the, the patina of time, has, right? Exactly. You know. But yeah, you've got the mists of you know three thousand right. years. It, it makes it a little easier to swallow in some way. Um, even Buddhism, which uh, you know, the saving grace of Buddhism is that they don't consider themselves a religion. Right. So you know, good on them. But yeah. everybody else with the organized power structures and you know money and property, it's yeah. like, come on, it's no, yeah. Like yeah. I say, I, I I often feel like, as I said, I you know, Mormonism is singled out. You know, there's a few in that category um, that are non-mainstream. Yeah. Um, so Scientology. You know, I, I think I've gotten away from, you know, I think even 10 years out of the church, I was still felt like I was defending it in certain right. ways um, just because it's, it is so maligned in certain circles. But you know. so what, okay. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to detract you or, or derail you from this, the story, your progression. So you, you went to Puerto Rico, which is a very Catholic uh, yep. environment, right? Yep. And you're knocking on doors there. It's you and someone else? Yeah, you have a companion you're with 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. Uh-huh. And is that someone you knew before? No, or you're, that you're randomly paired randomly. with somebody and you're moved around every two to three months with a new companion. Oh, really? So you don't oh, stay okay. with the same person the whole time. Oh, well, um, that's, that's... So I moved you know, to different areas of the island of Puerto Rico and spent various months in different towns and um, cities in Puerto Rico. And what was that like? Uh, it was, again, it's an amazing experience. It's one of those experiences um, that I would never choose now to right. do, but right. once I've had the experience, uh, it, it taught me a lot. Those, huh? You know, it taught me, you know, I've never been as lonely as I sometimes felt as a I remember when I first got there, the first night I was there, um, I'm in this tiny town called Vega Baja, Puerto Rico, and uh, I don't know this companion I've been paired up with. He's he's sort of odd. Um, I barely spoke the language. I was sunburned. I was I had rashes from walking too far with the sunburned and and i just i you know it's one of the loneliest feelings i've ever had yeah. I, I felt completely disconnected and as a missionary you're sort of stripped away from you know i was i was a fairly popular kid in high school i was athletically gifted um 
I drove a nice car. I dressed well. You know, these were crutches for me. And as a missionary, getting back to how you introduced it, all I had was a white shirt and a tie. Yeah. Um, I was gen- I was made to be generic in a sense. Um, and, and I didn't and have any... And is sort of a freak for, yeah. by the local people. Oh, right? you know, you get called names. You get rocks thrown at you. Oh, really? Um, people can be really uh, mean. And, you know, and I get it. Um, but, you Do know... Do they mistake you for Jehovah's Witnesses a lot? Sure. They're, that goes back and forth. They get mistaken for Mormons. And, yeah. and you know, but it, I, I think the Mormon elders are so distinct. And, you know, we rode bikes and, wore, yeah. you know, wore ties in 95 degree weather. So people sort of knew who we were. Right. 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 And your job is to convert, convert. So you're going door to door saying, you're, have you, it's hard. I mean, you get up, you're on a very regimented schedule. Uh-huh. Um, you spend a good 12 hours a day. You're supposed to be out contacting, talking to, knocking on doors every day. And do people ever go rogue? I mean, do, oh, do like, yeah. you meet one other guy and both of you are like, fuck it, this, man. Well, it actually, there's, uh, there are huge stories about um, this. Um, to come home from a mission disgraced um, is one of the worst things that can happen to you yeah. if if you uh, if you break the rules in certain ways and get sent home from your mission, the disgrace of that um, can be really life altering. There's it, it's a huge issue actually within the church. Do they have a, some sort of um, bureaucracy? Like, are there people in Puerto Rico who are yeah. checking up on you to make There's sure? There's what's you're called out? a mission president. There's uh-huh. a sort of a senior, and the mission president I had was this extremely wealthy guy who had um, been in the upper echelons of I think Chase. Um, very very wealthy man who was Friend called of Mitt Romney's. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I'm sure. Um, it's a pretty small world. Up yeah, top of that pyramid, top, yeah, and he was hanging out in Puerto Rico. So he, but but that's what you know. That's that's the progression of um, the Mormon power structure, right? I mean, that's what you would do. Um, right. The next step would be um, potentially to be called as one of the leaders of the church. So, is Mormonism very? And again, forgive me for ignorant questions because this this is really the first chance I've had to really grill somebody with sure. you know who who was comfortable talking about it. Um, is it very it, it from outside it appears to me to be very uh focused on accruing capital I've yeah i i 've often felt and said that part of what makes Mormonism successful at least in its current iteration is that they 've really adopted uh, corporate america 's business practices right. and and brought them into the religion right. so um is that a recent thing in Mormonism, or is well, that from the beginning? I, uh, probably a little bit from the beginning. Although I would say that you know the early founder Joseph Smith and then Brigham Young were really focused more on building communal living situations, um, and even you know I don't think corporate America was as well structured back then either. But the right. church has really adopted these. But in terms of accruing capital, part of why they do it so successfully is that they don't pay a ministry. I mean, that so they, they collect 10% tithing from every member, but they're not paying out. Um, each ward doesn't have a paid minister. The hmm. church is essentially lay-driven. It's run uh, by it's all like volunteer, volunteer members. fire departments. So yeah. they accrue capital, and therefore they... They tend to buy uh, and own all of their buildings outright. Uh-huh. Um, there's no debt. Um, uh-huh. And then with excess money, they 
they invest to secure the holdings of the church. So they'll invest in various businesses. Right. Um, and they have pretty large holdings uh, yeah. in lots of businesses. Don't they own like Coca-Cola? Or That's something? a rumor. Is no. that a rumor? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how many, you know, it's... Um, it rumors like you know, at one point maybe they owned a mutual fund or something in which there was invested, a stock. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. 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 So, I mean, when you get as you say at the top of those pyramids, everybody's got a piece of everything. Sure. I think, yeah, all the big stuff. Okay, so you're in Puerto Rico. You're you're with this odd guy. You're completely alone. You're sunburned. You're people. I, I've had jobs like my first job ever was selling newspaper subscriptions door to door when I was 14 or right. something. And that was horrible. Yeah. That was horrible. Bothering people in their homes. They yeah. open the door. They look at you like, oh, shit. What do you want? No, exactly. And, you know, and 12 hours a day. For and I was years. a cute little kid, which is why they hired me. It was a whole right. team of cute little 14-year-olds, you know, who were harder to say no to. But still, dogs attacked us and people, you know, threatened us with guns and, you know, all sorts of crazy shit. I've had all of that. Yeah. It must be much worse for you because you're not a little kid and you're, you're a foreigner in Puerto Rico, essentially. I mean, right. you're, you know, obviously um, not from there. And uh, and people tend to get really irate about religion. you telling them what to believe. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, it was, like I said, uh, and... And Latin countries at the time, when I was on a mission in the 80s, were a lot, even though there was all of that, I, you know, most missionaries know their number, their number of how many people they converted. So I was able to baptize maybe 50 people over two years that I was able to bring into the church. But if you, that would be compared, I I had it easy compared to, for example, some missionaries who were sent to Scandinavia. Who might who right. you know might go two years without even being able to teach one lesson because people are so um, <laughs> close to it. So, but they probably don't get attacked as much. Yeah, they're probably more civil. Um, <laughs> so you know, how, some what balance. percentage of Mormons on their mission get converted themselves? In other words, well, I mean, is a lot there of, a drop-off rate? A lot of Mormons will say that the biggest conversion uh, that the missionary, you know achieves is converting themselves um and it's it's a really ingenious way of sort of building in a committed member who then comes home and is really dedicated to the church um at a at a time of age where most kids are sort of out looking for trouble um, yeah you know you're sort of swept off and doing this sort of opposite but there's thing. no mormonism doesn't have like the amish have the wilding you know no there's no such concept in mormonism. <laughs> that's a shame huh yeah. <laughs> absolutely Just like six months to go all right exactly. go crazy and then see right. what you think yeah did the missionary thing was that part of um the the mormon tradition from the beginning or is that something that was instituted no, it's, it's, later no right from the beginning really um, joseph smith well there's fun stories about this and we can veer away from you know one of the joseph smith would send men off on uh mission calls all over oh, the world I see where this is going but sometimes he would send them off and then proposition their wives while right. they were gone which is a continuing issue in in cer- certainly in certain sects of mormonism but, sure uh who are they down there? the the guy who's in jail yeah uh, Jeff, Jeff, uh, Jeffries. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, 
the mainstream Mormon church of which I was a member really hasn't had any um, association with polygamy since maybe the 1930s, 1940s. Mm. Um, in theory, they're not supposed to have had it since early 1900s, but they did it in secret for a number of years after it became illegal. And you don't think they're still doing it in no. secret? No. Not in the mainstream church. Uh. No, it's the mainstream church is so has was so shamed out of it out of that practice and um get, getting back to what we talked about a little bit the corporate nature of the church what matters now is public image in a certain, it sort of drives mormonism um pretty strongly now so um even though polygamy remains part of their doctrine uh, their doctrine still claims that polygamy exists in heaven. Um, I've got polygamists on both sides of my family. Um, it's actually an polygamy issue. Polygamy exists in heaven. Yeah, it's the highest level of heaven um, includes polygamous marriages. That's still a core doctrine of Mormonism. So how does that work? I guess some men don't make it, but lots of women do. In theory, more, or I they mean, don't worry about the math working out. Well, a lot of a lot of times they just don't worry about the math. Right. But when those few moments where they do start to think about the math, that becomes one of the theories: is that women tend to be more spiritual than men, and mm-hmm. in heaven, there will be more women than men. Right. And women don't go on these missions, do they? No, they do. Oh, they do. Um, they go two years. When I was of age, they went two years later. That was another change they just made recently, and they they have that. So women still have to be a year older than than men to go on a mission. But uh. but um, there's not there hasn't been the expectation on women to go that there was on men. So oh, okay. it was maybe about ten to one, ten men to one woman serving uh, a mission. So it's not obligatory. No, for women, no. but it's. Sort of unspoken obligatory for men. Uh, yeah, I mean, they would never say it's obligatory, but when you grow up in the church, it's right. You, you're expected to do it. Right, right. Let's take a, a brief break. Okay, uh, it seems like a, a good sure. good place. When we come back, I want to I want to grill you a little bit about uh, first of all about how how you left Mormonism and uh, also politics okay. and Mormonism. So sure, we'll take a little break. Is there, is there any Let's, I, I usually play a little clip of a song in the break here. What, what should I go with, Don, Donnie and Marie? Is that uh, the best? You know, I, I worked for the Osmond family when I was in Utah, too. So, uh, <laughs> so no, I wouldn't. You What's know? your favorite Osmond song? <laughs> <laughs> is there any other, like, is there any other Mormon band? Oh, there's, yeah, there's all sorts of. I mean, that's mainstream that I would know of. <sighs> You're stumping me a little yeah. bit. All right, well, we'll play yeah. something from Donnie and Marie. I, I had a Donnie Osmond record when I was a kid, so I'm yeah. sure there's some. I woke up in love. No, that was the Partridge family. Yeah, yeah. it's easy to confuse the two. Yeah, so. yeah. The Carpenters were they Mormon? No. no, 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 no. Okay. All right, we'll be right back. All right, we're back with Tim Killian on an overcast Seattle day and home sparkled water. And uh, I can break out the scotch if you'd prefer. <laughs> it's a little a little early, early for that. Day, a little early. Yeah. For, I'm not a scotch drinker. I, we talked about this the other night. You, you're you always you're a scotch drinker. You know exactly what you. Like. I wish scotch is one of those things. I wish I appreciated. Well, you can work on it. Yeah, but if you have to work on it, then what's the point? Well, you know, it's some like, things are worth the effort, though. But you know? but. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like red wine. I never had to work on that. Yeah. I just like it. Yeah. You know, beer I worked on a little bit. I was 15. Yeah, beer. See, I, you know, continuing on the story, I never drank until I was 26. I didn't have my first taste of alcohol until after, you know, I moved on from the church. And uh, it was a, you know, it was all a struggle for me at first. So I, because it was a wine, all of it was a struggle. I, I wasn't acculturated to it in any way. So, right. you know, Scotch was actually the hardest one to drink up front, um, yeah. but that sort of intrigued me, and uh, maybe that's why I like it so much now. Yeah, yeah, it's like a battle scar or something, right? Yeah, Scotch cigars. Sometimes I watched a film, an independent film, years ago. It was I think it was called Tobacco Shop. It was about this little tobacco shop in Brooklyn. I think it was Jim Jarmusch. You know, him? yeah, I've seen that movie. I. Uh, yeah, there are all these all these cameo, yeah, you know, great actor, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I after seeing that movie, I I was in San Francisco at the time, and there was a you know high end tobacco shop right next to where I work. So I went in there, and the you know the guy explained to me all the stuff about the cigars and how the different diameter of the cigar determines the temperature of the smoke, and you know all this is hand rolled here and this is that and da da da. So I bought one cigar, one twenty dollar cigar, right. and I went home. And I remember I had this great apartment in the in the. Um, what's it called the attic of a victorian house with you know those sort of windows that jut out from the slope ceilings and and uh, it was late afternoon the sun was coming through the windows it was beautiful i lit up the cigar i sat there smoking the cigar watching the smoke going through the slanting light it was so beautiful for about five minutes and then i had to puke like a teenager you know at prom night i've had the same Green at the gills. Oh, God, it uh, was cigar. horrible. Yeah, I got really sick once and haven't returned. Yeah, yeah. Tequila did that. I, I have a tequila experience. Same thing. I did it once. Never. I. I mean that that involved people cutting their hands to become blood brothers and you mm. know me waking up they dry they were afraid sort of a hangover type of uh... it, was, it was there was no monkey involved as far as i know but yeah it was a it was a hell of a night that was in alaska that was one of those nights where i was camping on this bluff in kenai alaska overlooking cook inlet waiting for the salmon run to start so that the cannery would start hiring people and we were all there gathered around this cannery waiting for the salmon and we'd been there for 10 days or something and there's nothing there there's nothing to do and it was this tent community of probably 150 200 people and uh so one night we were like, geez, what are we, let's just get really drunk. You know, it was Perfect like, that idea. was our project <laughs> tonight. We're going to get really, really drunk. So we went to this, I was with, uh, two guys that I had traveled with a little bit. I'd met on the ferry coming up, uh, Rob and Brent actually Brent. Now that I think of it, Brent was a black Mormon. Hmm. He was a black guy who had been adopted by Mormon cattle ranchers in Provo, Utah. Wow. And raised there. And at the time story. Yeah. At the time, I didn't really know how, what a story it was. You know, I I knew very little about Mormonism. He was the sweetest dude though. He and his buddy, Rob, Rob was from Telluride, Colorado. They were traveling together. I guess they were both at the university of Colorado at Boulder. And 
So I guess Brent must have been somewhat secular. I, I, I mean, his parents must have been, right, to adopt sure. him? I, I don't... But he was the coolest guy. I mean, he was, like, super fit, big, strong dude, big backpack. And after we started traveling together and, and hung out for a while, I realized that the reason he had such a big backpack was he had a four-person tent, the North Face... Uh, Himalaya Hotel, it was called the VE twenty four. I remember this. I remember that. Tent, you know that actually, tent? Absolutely. Yeah. It was a beautiful top of the line tent, and he had uh, ropes and crampons and all that stuff for two people, because he kept an extra set in case he met someone who was interested in climbing with him but didn't have gear. And he carried that shit all through Alaska. And that year, after working in the canneries, he was planning to climb uh, McKinley. Uh, Denali. Anyway, just like a super guy, cool guy, really generous, kind, wonderful guy. And his buddy uh, Rob, who was also who I went to prison. I went to prison with Rob. He and I had this whole thing in Fairbanks. But anyway, that's geez, these are you're, you're the guy being interviewed. Well, I'll, I'll, <laughs> prison stories are always good. <laughs> well, I wasn't even going to tell the prison story. I was going to tell the tequila story. <laughs> uh, so what happened with the tequila story was we so we go. I was with Rob Brent and a couple other dudes that we'd met in this camp. And we went to this uh, place. We bought uh, two bottles of I think it was called Three Fingers or Two Fingers tequila. I don't remember the there's a brand name. And I had never had tequila. I was 19 or 20 or something. I I didn't really have much experience with hard alcohol at all. Uh, you know, beer, wine, whatever, but whiskey, scotch, all that stuff. I don't know. And um, so and they had the lemons and the salt, you know. Right. Again, I'd never tried that. So it was just going down like I didn't taste it, you know, no problem. So I must have done 10 shots or something in an hour. And um, I got this very strong need to read some poetry to these guys because mm. I was very into poetry. So I grabbed my Carpe copy. Diem. Carpe diem, baby. And you know whose poetry I was reading at the time? D.H. Lawrence, you know, Perfect. Mr. Carpe Diem. So I got my, my selected uh, poetry of D.H. Lawrence and I read them a poem called Snake, which I loved. And to say it was a receptive audience would be overstating the case a little bit, but they tolerated me. And then I passed out. I mean, just face plant in the dirt. And uh, I could hear them, the, you know, the party continuing, right. laughing about me and poetry and, you know, and but it was all at a very right. distance. You're in a tunnel. Yeah, exactly. I was at the other end of the tunnel, the tequila tunnel. And uh, and then, you know, the, the party the sort of veered from drunken hilarity into that sort of sloppy romantic drunken you know you know we're i love you man you know, I love you, and we're young and <laughs> right. it's a fucking alaska man and we'll never forget this this was 1983 i think summer of 83 and um then i hear somebody one of the guys say yeah man we should become blood brothers yeah, that's a great idea, Blood Brother. Now, this is before AIDS was really happening, right? Sure. Killed the whole Blood Brother thing, right? right. right. Um, and then I hear someone say, oh, 
oh, oh, that's too deep, man. Oh, that, that, no, that's too much. And oh, it'll be cool. It just put some pressure. And, you know, they're going through this whole thing and then people screaming. And then I hear someone say, well, Chris would want to be a blood brother. And I was like, oh, man, all I could do was pull my hands under my chest, right? <laughs> like if they had cut me on the back, right. I couldn't have done anything about right. it, you know. But they eventually left me alone. And So you didn't make the pact? I, I didn't, no. And nor Now, see, this is one thing. Casilda and I were talking about this last night. You, you know, there's this new... Um, there, there's a proposal to lower the alcohol limit again for drunk driving from 0.8 to 0.5 now. And we're talking about this, and, and I, you know, this is not a very popular position to take, but I think people have very individual reactions to alcohol. Myself, for example, I don't, I, I don't, um, my judgment doesn't get affected. So I can get drunk. I'm sure my hand-eye coordination and my reaction time and all those physiological things, you know, I'm not saying I'm immune to that. But I don't make dumbass decisions. Right. I don't say, hey, let's run some red lights, you know, like right, people right, do. Right. And that's a lot of what causes accidents. People make dumb decisions. They go right. too fast. You know, if anything, I'm more cautious because I know I'm drunk. Sure. And I, so I think your next campaign should be individual testing. I should be able to, like, drink five beers, take a driving test, and if I pass that driving test, then I get a little thing, like, next to my organ, organ donor stamp, I get a thing saying, this guy's good for, you know, 1.2. Sure. Why not? And well, if people it's, say... It's just a, you know, government's a blunt tool. And that's, you yeah. know, we, we live in an age of increased specialization, individualization. Right. Right. And we've got the technology. Uh, sure. I, right. I mean, that would, a, a lot of people, in fact, have been pushing for, um, for a number of years, that every car should just come with a breathalyzer in it. Um, but, you know, the expense of that and... Implementing things on a large scale, um, gov- that's why government is a blunt instrument is because sometimes it's really hard to try and individualize certain things. Um, yeah. And then there's a certain, yeah. uh, you know, it's always, you know, the small percentage of people who ruin it for the rest of us kind of syndrome. Um, right. But aren't we at a point technologically where, I mean, you know, if they can... They, you know, they can uh, with satellite imagery. They can, you know, read the, a note you write on the back of your hand. You know, they can. Cer- we can certainly have. For example, I took an expert motorcycle driving class in Pennsylvania. So once I got that, that was registered. Sure. My insurance rates went down for my motorcycle. Sure. Now, why couldn't the same thing happen? You know, this well, guy can drive stoned and drunk better than you know most sixty-five-year-olds drive completely sober. How does it? makes i mean i know there are practical issues there but it seems to me that you should be able to demonstrate competence like you know get a pilot's license well you have to have vision you know vision tests you have to do all these things that you check your heart make sure you're not going to have a heart attack when you're flying over a city or something it seems to me we should it seems to me there's there's institutional resistance to using the tools at hand to create more freedom for people who can handle it. Well, I maybe, but I would also say the the reality is in all politics, you know, I I think selling that just to the population would be difficult. Oh yeah. You know, so it's not just a technological issue. Sure. Um, it's you know, again, marijuana. Most people understood it's fairly safe. In fact, lots of people, you know. 
a large percentage of the population had experience with it to know that it wasn't this damaging, terrible thing. But even then, people became so caught up in the idea of you know, keeping society safe from itself, that even people who thought, well, I could handle it, still think that there's a whole group of other people out there. Right. Everything is always about, you know, those other people. Right. And that's what a lot of society is trying to be protected from is, while I get that that may work for me and and you, my friend, there's a whole group of other people who couldn't handle it. And historically, that's been racism. But but isn't that corrosive to the very nature of government itself? Uh, Absolutely. Because now you've got people like Bush and, and Obama... Saying, hey, yeah, I did a bit of blow in school and sure. got high. But, yeah. hey, you know, there's still 50,000 people going to prison every year for what I did. Fuck them. Sure. You know? Well, what the hell in, is that? Ineffective government is always bad. Um, and hypocritical government. Sure. Government that, that just fundamentally doesn't work for reasons um, in which it conflicts with humanity. You know, we're, we're filled with that. There's all sorts of examples of that. But, you know... It's society. Um, I, I often make the point, though, that we. I think we slip too easily into this idea of government as they, um, and I think it fundamentally causes us to to misunderstand the way government in our culture does work. Government is a they, but that they really is controlled by we. We just don't recognize how much power we have, oftentimes, and we often don't recognize how much influence that we are exerting on our government. Um, So, again, back to, you know, I think there are a lot of politicians who wish they could act in certain ways. Um, I'm sure Obama, there's lots of things that he wishes he could just do. Right. Right. But he's in the middle of a game. Like, I'm I'm pretty forgiving. Once you see politics and the way it works inside, I'm somewhat forgiving of a lot of politicians um, because I know how hard it is just to do what they would like to do um, because the populace is not there yet. The population of people um, yeah. would not support those moves. So, but. To what extent do you think the popular will? I mean, on the drunk is, driving thing, we're, it's going, it's going completely in the opposite direction, like yeah, you're saying, yeah. you know. Um, and you know, for better or worse, there's there's a point where, you know, back to the blunt tool thing, it's it's hard to not do that. And my work on the Sentencing Guidelines Commission, I mean. I've, I've become a big advocate. My, if my biggest push right now and where I would like to go more and more in government is what I call evidence-based governing. Right. Like everything should be focused. And, and for example, our criminal justice system right now is almost, uh, has almost no evidence-based um, justification to it. We, in, in all my time on the Sentencing Guidelines Commission for the state, it was a question that I pushed over and over again and talked to experts, we don't measure whether or not what we do is effective. Right. Um, we, right. we don't. Because um, it's the emotional. Sure. Off, right. Like the death penalty. Uh, uh, it's right. dem- well demonstrated. It's sure. not effective for, uh, de- de- what's the word, de- deferring crime. Or Deterrence. Deterring. Deterring. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but there's but an there's, emotional pain. There's an, and, and you have to take that into account. Uh, I get that vengeance is a real um, feeling. You know, there are certain acts that um, I think would – that force our hand to treat them harshly, even if the evidence would tell us that you can't rehabilitate that prisoner. And I'm okay with that. But I think those are – those situations are rare compared to the vast majority of 
people who are sitting in our prisons right. and, and questioning whether or not not only is what we're doing effective for them, but in many ways, um, the very little research that has been done is starting to tell us that what we're doing is not only ineffective for them, but creates more crime for us. Of course. It's counterproductive. It's, it's a crime school. Yeah. You know, you send a kid, some kid who gets busted with a few ounces of marijuana, you send him to prison, he's not going to. And you, you or, make it impossible yeah. for him to get student loans. Imagine the 28-year-old dad of two kids yeah. gets busted for pot. Right. Um, doesn't go to prison, right? And, and lots of people don't get this, but maybe spends three months in jail. Right. right? He's probably lost his job. Right. His wife is probably seriously considering leaving him, and in many cases probably does. So that one act has, has um, split up a family, right. has uh, ruined a guy's career right. um, over pot. Right? Yeah. And the long-term and systemic results of that are um, overwhelming, and I think, and I think we've sort of turned a blind eye to it. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, the United States went off the rails with the election of Ronald Reagan. That was the 1980. That's when things just, you know, you had Jimmy Carter, smart, progressive, intelligent guy who got shit on by the Ayatollahs and sure. the gas crisis and things over which he had absolutely no control, replaced by the Reagan administration, which, you know, again, I'm oversimplifying, but to me, the Reagan administration was the moment in American history where corporate public relations technology and savvy came into the political process yeah. in a way that that because it, it was corporate and because corporations are not moral entities, it was completely disconnected from any moral or ethical concern. Yeah. All that mattered was winning. So you got and the I southern actually, strategy. Yeah, I actually think this is a huge problem. In fact, I've, I'm, I'm sort of in a state of discontent right now myself. Like I have actually – I mean I felt this way at the beginning of the Iraq war, um, but more and more – you know. America likes to think of itself as a moral and ethical place that has checks and balances that keep us um, on a certain path. Right. But, you know, we went to war on um, what I would call negligent uh, examination of the evidence, and there's no check and balance for that. Like, right. Because you know, we throw, the press our, is we throw our weight around, and, you know, what's the yeah. check and balance for when we overstep? It, with, it should be the press. Right. But as we've seen, the press is owned by the same corporations sure. that own the government. Right. Which gets back to my initial question, which I never really finished, which was, you know, you said we control the government. And I feel like, no, we don't. The corporations control sure. the government. I mean, I agree with you. Uh, what I'm saying is I, I still think that potential exists for us to exert our influence. It does. But, I don't know but how look, we get there. I, you know, I'm, I'm. Well, I'll tell like you I said, how we get there. Okay. Uh, WikiLeaks. But look what happened to WikiLeaks. Sure. Right. Every look what what's happening right now with the the subpoena or the, not the subpoena the wiretapping of uh, the AP. Sure. You know, it's like. I, I think that every time uh, Bradley Manning, Bradley, how is Bradley Manning not a national fucking hero? You know, he brought the truth to light. Sure. I met Daniel Ellsberg recently, and, and he made the same point. He's like, Bradley Manning is, if anything, has more balls than I had with the yeah. Pentagon Papers. You know? I actually think even, you know, even within American culture, the liberal left, um, 
the job holding liberal left, the corporate job holding liberal left. In mm-hmm. Seattle, we're rife with people who consider themselves leftist liberals, mm-hmm. um, but are really attached to corporate America in in a way that. Um, causes that to be their first devotion yeah um and i i don't you know i, pay the I think bills, there's you know, some revolutions yet to happen and uh well that's the thing i mean you, you see this this the gap between the very very wealthy and right. everyone else just spreading and spreading and yeah. you know at a certain point that rubber band breaks yeah you know and it, and that's the one area where i kind of feel like i almost am sympathetic to the the gun nuts in this country because you know it's funny i was watching bill maher last last week and he he made this point which he makes lots of times like you know all you gun nuts you think you you know you're ak-47 or whatever what are you going to do against the the drones and the you know stealth bombers and the aircraft carriers you idiots right but look at afghanistan what did they have what do they have they have a bunch of submachine guns everybody's armed and IEDs, and they've got Russia out of there, and they got us out of there. Yeah. So you know this argument that you know, uh, you know, you guys with your well-armed populace, you're never going to do anything against the, against the government. Well, sorry, it's demonstrated that a well-armed populace who knows sure. how to use their arms can make life really yeah. difficult for an. I, and I would power. actually, and you know, I, I'm a strong advocate for interpreting the Second Amendment to be about militias and. and you know, to, to be armed, Not individual. Have, have have individual communities have the ability to sort of rise up as needed. Right. Um, but guns, that's a whole other topic. It's, yeah, yeah. It's funny, you know, politics and strange bedfellows and all that. It, it's, you know, normally I would be, I don't own a gun. I've never owned a gun. Uh, so I, I would sort of normally be scoffing along with people like Bill Maher. But then I started thinking about, wait a minute, Afghanistan, Vietnam, sure. you know, there are a lot of places where. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, this is getting back to, I have this sort of emerging theory that we have forgotten. Like, I think, um, I do think with all its problems and my own discontent and they're large right now with America, I do think that a government, that the world, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario in which the army in America turns upon itself. Turns against its own yeah. people. Because it's so ingrained. The culture, at least the value system of we the people, is still such a huge part of um, the overwhelming number of the populace that it's hard for me to imagine a point at which any leader um, of the government could turn that in such a way that the army, as we see in other countries where coups happen and armies um, trade allegiances, um, I actually think that our culture, this American experience, still um, has infused that as a safeguard into this culture. And it's hard. You know, I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but it's hard for me to imagine. Um, like I don't think that could happen in America in the way, uh, or in Canada. Or in you know in the way that it happens in in other types of governments mm. in authoritarian governments in yeah. in countries that are fundamentally broken economically yeah um, I get why it happens there I, I do think that there's something about our structure you know for you, the other concern I'm having is as you mentioned this one percent this increased disparity of wealth. Um, I actually do think that that has a potential to derail us. And for a long time, 
as I became more and more disillusioned with that, I started to become more and more disillusioned with the very notion of capitalism. And so I started researching, in fact, to write an article for my blog. Um, a couple years ago, I started reading. I went back and read Adam Smith. I read Karl Marx. And what I've come to is that I actually, you know, I was ready to say, okay, I'm no longer a capitalist if this is what it's producing. But I've now come to the opinion that um, Adam Smith, the founders of capitalism, always understood that regulation and the market were some, were a part of the game. Right. right? And we've gotten away from that. We've, right. This, this notion of free market has so enveloped us that we actually believe there's such a thing as a free market. You're and right. There, and there if isn't. you go back to the fundamental thinkers that these guys are always quoting, Adam right. Smith talked a lot about regulation. Right, exactly. Darwin talked a lot about co- uh, cooperation. Right. You know, and yet he's right. used the same way Adam Smith is used to promote this very extremist dogmatic view, you know, sort of a pure thinking view right. of capitalism. And it gets back yeah. to my, my point of evidence-based, not just in the criminal. I actually mm. think our economics should be evidence-based. Right. One and thing we, one thing we haven't thing. done is defined what do we expect. You know, capitalism is a tool. What do we expect it to achieve? Right. And what I come back to is if it's not achieving the values that we agreed upon in the Constitution, then it's broken. It's not working within our system. And I would argue that it's not achieving those values. Or, you know, using your metaphor of a tool, it's being misused. Sure. You know, you can't use it's a hammer to screw in a screw. Right. And, yeah, it, yeah, 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 it's it, – what a mess. I mean, you, you, you when you were talking about evidence-based uh, sentencing guidelines, and th- I was thinking of the minimum mandatory sentencing craze that came in under Reagan, which is sure. still in effect in a lot of places, which, which completely subverts the r- role of the judge. Correct. Who is there to make evidence-based decisions. That's, right. like, that's what a judge is, right? Sure. And that's what the whole, the whole justice but, you know, system you is can, But you do. can – so arguing the other side, though, a lot of – a lot of what I would say the good part of advocation for that was that there are populations who don't do well uh, sitting before a judge who carries with him all the biases of his culture. So, for example, racism was really a problem um, with, without sentencing guidelines, right? Um, you would get such Still huge. Is it's, with oh, them, uh, absolutely. You know, the, the crack uh, I'm, I'm not, look, disparity. we haven't solved this issue yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. But you know, there's arguments on both sides. I would, um, I, I would make the argument that we we've, we've gone way beyond uh, cruel and unusual punishment in the way we're handling our criminal justice oh, system right now. Um, yeah, um, solitary if, confinement yeah. is torture. And if we if we advocated evidence based, um, I actually again I have an article on my blog in which I argue that science should now be a human right. We have the ability to measure um, the well being of our populations uh, using the laws that we pass as as a as a guide and see whether or not we're achieving what we claim to be achieving. And if we aren't, um, then I think we're outside of what we should consider a human right. What's the URL of your blog? Moreperfect.org. I've read, uh, I've, I've visited a few times when we first met, I, yeah. I checked it out. In fact, I think it was my, my article on the man bag. I think is it that might how we been. first met. I think it Actually, that was, I think that's what, yeah, that's going back to how we met. It was, you read my post yeah. called of satchels and sexuality <laughs> in which I, in it's which classic, I, I talk about, gentlemen. um, 
the farce that it is in our culture to wear a man bake and, and sort of the funny things that have happened to me over the years. Yeah. I've carried one for about 20 years. Yeah. but um, And now you see I'm carrying one. I do see I, you're carrying you know, one. You've converted me. But just that little bag challenges people's cultural understanding of themselves. It women. I've had such funny reactions. I've had women demand that I empty my bag on the counter to prove to them that I needed to be carrying a bag. I've had women come up to me in bars and say, you take that off. You should not be wearing that. <laughs> um, it's still, uh, I, I get all sorts of really funny reactions. That's and to funny. me, it started out and remains. I, I like it as a fashion accessory, I guess. But in our technological age, we carry so much crap with us. Yeah. Um, it's just practical. I don't like carrying my keys in my pocket. Yeah, I don't me like either. carrying my wallet in my and, pocket. Yeah, and once I started, and it's also nice to have all your stuff in one place. So yeah. when you're leaving the house, you grab it and you walk out. It's you know, like, oh, where's my phone? Where's right. where's that? Oh, geez, did I forget? Do I have money? Where's yeah. my bag? Is very like. Uh, I keep meaning I'm going to write an article about this. It's very organized. I know exactly what's in it. Like, this is over 20 years of carrying this thing. I've got this thing down to a You've science. You've had the same bag the whole time? Oh, various bags. Oh, but yeah. they all have to fit. Like, I now know what I require in a bag. Right, right. Um, And they're hard to find. Like, the right mm-hmm. bag is hard to find in American culture because... A uh, good bag is hard to find. Absolutely. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I think <laughs> We share was. a bag fetish. Yeah, well, you know, I uh, one of the reasons I'm here in Seattle was that uh, I had a... I ordered this really beautiful leather bag from I should get damn I should get saddleback leather to, to sponsor, sponsor my absolutely because I am like I've got so much crap from them I've got two wallets a, ba- a large backpack a small backpack uh, I had my first, uh, I bought the, uh, what was, what are those things called? The iPad. I got a, a saddle leather iPad, yeah. you know, cover and I, so much stuff, but it's really it's good stuff. Good. Yeah. And I, we were talking about Deadwood. So I've been watching Deadwood right. again recently and all, you know, it's like all these leather, rough leather bags and stuff. It's, uh, you know, it's, think, it's macho. To be absolutely to be nostalgic about it. Think about their saddle bags and how important those would have been to, you know, I don't own a yeah. car, so. So when I'm out amongst the city and on transit, you know, my bag is sort of, it's yeah. sort of, you know, my lifeline. It's my support It's funny. System. It's like, it's cool to have a bag when you're in college, right? Yeah. You got your books right. and stuff. And then you, people progress to a, a briefcase, which makes no sense whatsoever because you have to, you lose the use of one hand. And it's completely uh, imbalanced on yeah, your body. Right. It doesn't yeah, work. No. And well, although there's, there's sort of the, the messenger bag thing. Yeah. Now, the messenger is bag cool. is the compromise. Yeah. Um, but, but, but they're so big 29 and they're so big. Like, do you, yeah. I mean, that's, a, I don't need to carry that much stuff every time. Yeah. You're um, not doing your laundry. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. All right. Well, that was a nice tangent. Man, Man bags. bags. <laughs> <laughs> Man bags rule. All right. So let's get back. So where, where did we, we leave your progression? Uh, you in Puerto Rico. Oh, and I came back to so, BYU. And now you're, so you were in Puerto Rico for two years. No, I'm sorry. But 85 I'm, to 87. Okay. I'm speaking as a man whose first major girlfriend was Puerto Rican. There's a lot of beautiful women in Puerto Rico. <sighs> Dude, that's, I mean, I've never been to Puerto Rico, but I've been to New York. There's more Puerto Ricans, at least when I was there, there were more Puerto Ricans in New York City than on the island of Puerto Rico. Yeah. And I think, was is it more more Jews than in Israel or or could probably or than in any Israeli city maybe know, it was maybe. I don't remember but I remember there are all these stats about New York and more yeah. Armenians than Ar- yeah. Armenia and yeah 
Um, okay, so if this is too personal, we'll just skip it. But you're a Mormon virgin in Puerto Rico for two years, sunburned and lonely. I taught myself in those two years how how strong devotion can be in curbing uh, your own your own biological needs. So, how old were you? Uh, between the ages of nineteen and twenty-one. Man. Although, you know, I fell in love all the time. Like, I'll bet. I, I, there are two specific women I baptized who really it was uh, one specific woman who I, you know, this classic story of I was in Sears, which was one of the stores available, to buy a brand new white shirt because I got <laughs> bike grease. Because I got bike grease <laughs> from my bike on it. Oh, yeah. And I turn and it's the classic Hollywood, our eyes locked, this beautiful Puerto Rican woman uh, who. In any other time of my life, I would have asked out on a date, but because I couldn't do that, I asked her to learn about the Mormon Church, and uh, we I, I ended up baptizing her. Um, she moved to the states. We've been friends ever since. She, really? she left the church, um, but in fact, I just uh, she remains one of my best friends to this day. No but, kidding. Uh, yeah. So I had a lot of experiences where you know you would, you know, you're still a guy, and you know, but how, how do Mormons feel about masturbation? It's it's a sin. Oh. Yeah. So from a young age, I was made to feel uh, really shameful about uh, masturbation. Wow. But, you know, in that two-year... Um, you should never do it as a missionary. I think I masturbated twice in two years while I was a missionary, um, which I now look at with complete... Um, I mean, it taught me how strong I can be. If, uh, you know, um, it, it, it actually was a something i carry with me like i know i can be devoted to a principle um, right. now and so i actually think long and hard about those things that i agree to do because um i'll often um i'll forsake what i need um in devotion to the principle how is that different from a capacity for fanaticism no it's not <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid you'd say that. It's not, you know. I, I mean, I guess my hope would be, you know, at least. I often you know. think I'm saved by my laziness. You know, I, it, seriously. I, you are so much more disciplined than I am. Well, there is no you know, way. There is no cause on earth that would have stopped me from masturbating for two years from 19 to 21. The, the, save the children, cure cancer. I don't give a shit. In a certain way, it's, you know, I don't know that I had, uh, you know, I learned to have the capacity on some level. And again, I now count that as, um, in that instance, as a bad thing. But the fact that I've learned, um, I learned it. Um, has has allowed me to do some things in my life right. that um, I'm appreciative of, you know, that I went yeah. through that experience. Even though I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't wish it upon my own children or um, choose it again for myself, you know. And so that's, you know, and we've talked offline. There are a lot of cultural things now that um, that I know I I I can force myself to commit to a principle, um, even to my own detriment. Yeah. So I have to be careful about what I pick and choose. Yeah, definitely. 
Definitely. Or just like hang out with people like me who will drag you into the muck if, um, you, if you get too exalted. Somehow I always find myself hanging out with people. Like me. <laughs> well, that's, it's a self-correcting principle, probably. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I was talking uh, to our mutual friend Dan Savage about the similar thing recently about him being raised as a Catholic. And uh, both my parents were raised as Catholics, very believing. My father wanted to go into the priesthood. And I'm actually named... Uh, after the priest that my father went to when he first had doubts. And the priest said, he was also a professor at this Catholic university my father was at, and the priest said, you know what, Um, I'm actually having some doubts myself. And they confided their feelings. And that was such an important experience for my father that, yeah. you know, when... I can imagine. Yeah. And and I met the man, uh, Chris, um, years later. Uh, Still a priest? No, he left the priesthood a few years after that. Right. And, uh, but one of, he's one of the sweetest people ever, just... Uh, just uh i don't even know how to describe him um a really uh clean person you know clean yeah. spiritually right yeah you know like someone who comes out of the i mean this is the other thing i was i've said to dan and, and other friends who are, are gay I, I admire people who have been through that experience not just because they've been through it but because the ex- coming through the experience of facing a truth that you were previously not facing makes you a deeper, richer person than someone who doesn't go through that. Yeah. I often, so I have two young sons who I'm raising, um, who aren't having the same experience uh, as I am, um, with the church. And sometimes I wonder, you know, sometimes I regret that a little bit because my experience of having been completely, I had a vision of the world that I thought was real and true that I believed completely and unpacking all of that and losing that belief and having gone through the experience of um, seeing the world through different eyes, that has given me an understanding of the world that I consider invaluable now. Um, what what triggered the the process? So the leaving of the church. Yeah. Should jump to that part of the story. So, oh, is uh, it a, is it a long jump? Or are we missing? No, it? no, we're almost there. You know, I, I had about four years of um, sort of a blind spot when I finished up my career at BYU. Um, I never, I, I didn't understand it then. Now I understand I was on my way out, but BYU is a marriage factory, for example, and I barely dated them. And I'm a relatively good-looking guy who could have dated a lot of women down there. And I didn't understand it back then, but I didn't date. Now I understand that I knew, I think, that I was on my way out of the church and that to commit to a Mormon uh, girl right. at that time that would have sealed you wouldn't, wouldn't have worked for yeah. me. Um, so I ended up, I, I left the church in 92. A lot of, there's a lot of what got me there. I mean, we could probably talk for hours and months on this, but, um, some of the highlights, I have, uh, two brothers who are gay. One's a half brother and my oldest brother who are gay that created, you know, the way they were being treated uh, within the church. They were out. Um, yeah, they were kicked out. I mean, well, out, out as gay. Well, so one of my half-brother um, was in the closet and has since gone back into the closet. was married with kids and has, oh. has gone back into the closet. My other brother was married uh, with two kids. Um, 
was excommunicated from the church uh, when he came out. He came out though and made a declaration and left his wife. And um, oh my, how so, old were you when that happened? So when he came out, um, my my half brother, who's much older and who really wasn't very much a part of my life, I found out he was gay when I was about twelve, and I remember feeling like I'd just been punched in the stomach by this evil that had come into my life. So that's how different I've been. So my oldest brother came out uh, 10 years later when I was maybe 22, 23. Mm. Um, But that was one break. Uh, My parents divorcing uh, when I was 22, 23 um, created another break for me. Was their divorce related to your brothers? No. Um, No, although I would say at that time... um, and in Mormonism, and still to the, I, I think the existence of a gay sibling or member of your family in Mormonism creates an earthquake within the typical family view of Mormonism that it shakes up a lot of things. Because you have to sort of choose between loving him or right. staying in your exactly. church. Yeah. Right. How so that was is divorce in Mormonism. Oh, I I think it's as common as it is in American culture. Oh, really? Yeah. So I don't think it's a, I don't think it's much different. It's I mean, no one would say it's accepted, but I think the reality is. And also, I mean, let's Mormonism likes to hold itself up as the fastest growing religion in the world. That's maybe was true at one point in the eighties. Um, uh, everything I've seen at this point. Uh, tends to say that Mormonism is shrinking, um, that they're losing a lot more members than they're gaining, that if they are growing, it's uh, most likely due to growth in other countries, um, right. lots of third world nations in right. which it's uh, taking off quite a bit. Huh. Um, but in America proper, um, I think uh, it's actually shrinking. Yeah. I'm surprised that, that divorce is as acceptable, and I, I just would have assumed that it was very... Uh, Restrictive well, and look, difficult. I think you know, and this you know, we haven't touched on, but there's a lot of cultural conflict that that the idea of the traditional white picket fence hold it up for images family yeah. is running into the reality of people's lived lives. Yeah, um, and I, uh, I think is Mormonism adaptive? As a in theory, you know, in theory, Joseph Smith started the religion precisely to be adaptive. Right. So he started it in the context of what he perceived to be the intransigence of um, the ministers in his community who only held to the Bible and who said that there could be no new revelation, that everything God needed to say was said in the Bible. And Joseph Smith said, no, you know, revelation should be ongoing and we should be able to adapt. And, And so that's where Mormonism actually started in one theory as a very progressive Religion. Right. Um, that was uh, sort of its initial start. It has since morphed. And what I, as I've thought about it, um, it's sort of like, you know, with the lay run church, you would think that Mormonism would continue to be adaptive. But in a way that, you know, how embedding the journalists in the Iraq war, the theory was we would get better reporting hmm. and in practice what actually happened was that the journalists then became co-opted into yeah. the cause right um there's something about the structure of mormonism that has turned it into uh what i would argue is the most conservative religion the less likely to change religion so for example the mormon church didn't accept black people um into their priesthood until 1978 the last major american religion to do so right um and there's all sorts of ways in which 
Mormonism, even though it's structured in theory to be able to change and adapt because it has what it considers to be a prophet who can get revelation. But the very structure of that has actually had the opposite effect, um, and it has now caused it to be very rigid and slow to change. Do you think there's a sexual abuse scandal in the Mormon church as there is in Catholic church? I mean, not in the same way. There are certainly uh, lots of sexual abuse scandals that I'm aware of over the years that have happened within Mormonism, but it's not, it would be a a different dynamic than in the Catholic church because you don't have, I mean, you don't have single male priests who are priests for life. There's not that culture of, you have lay bishops, um, who do this for three or four years and then move on. Um, the, the, the scandals that I'm familiar with, um, that I, knew of growing up were situations such that the bishop didn't report abuse that he was made aware of to the police, for example, trying to work it out within the church or within a family. state situation. Yeah, those types of things where disclosure didn't happen. Right. Um, But not typically, um, uh, sure, I'm sure everything happened, but not in the same way that we find in the Catholic church. Yeah. All right. So, sorry I interrupted you. You, your, Your brother's... Your parents divorcing, so you you're out of college at this point. So, so there was a couple year period there where I had graduated from BYU. I was home trying to figure out where to go with my life. Um, home being where Seattle, back uh-huh. in Seattle from having been in Utah for school, and uh, I think just a, a whole series of you know my own intellectual pursuits were running into um, the dissolution of my family, who was going through all this chaos and uh um I knew I was on the way out. I um, ended up meeting a woman who was also Mormon, who'd also served a mission, who was in a similar place and mm-hmm. on the way out. Uh, we actually made a commitment, though, to each other to, to make one last gasp effort to give it everything we could. Um, we didn't have sex before we got married. We ended up getting married in the Mormon temple. Um, but that act of being married in the Mormon temple, which is sort of a crowning achievement for Mormons, was our very last act of activity. Activity within the church. We actually left the church uh, af- right after that. Right after. Yep. So you both sort of felt like Ooh, that didn't feel the way it was supposed to feel. Yeah, it felt really odd in uh, in lots of different ways. Um, huh. And it just happened to coincide with where we were at. And then there's this structural thing that happens. So when you're Mormon, um, you go to a an assigned ward, much like a school district, um, would send your kids to a certain place. You don't just pick and choose a church as you want. You go to your geographically based church. And when you're single, though, Mormons have set up these special churches just for single people because they want to get you married off, right? So, so you're married, or you're when you're single, you're going to the single ward. And then we got married, and we suddenly needed to go to a new ward, and it was just a nice break for us to be able to step away from the church because nobody knew us in this other place. Place that we weren't going. You could fall through a right. crack there. Exactly. Okay, last question about Mormonism. All right. What's with the magic underwear? Is there really magic underwear? Well, Mormons believe that the underwear they wear um, has properties that, uh, if they're righteous, can help. Uh, protect them. Some Mormons would say uh, that's only metaphorically. Um, other Mormons, um, there's all sorts of apocryphal stories. Uh, in fact, I have one from my mission. Um, I was with a companion. We were walking along the side of the road. He got hit by a car, actually, right next to me and and thrown 30 feet or so. And we have this apocryphal story about how his garments 
that's what Mormons call the underwear, um, saved him. And so, uh, you know, yeah. So he wasn't hurt. I mean, slightly, but nowhere near the way, you know, you would expect to be hit by a car and thrown 30 feet. Right. So. Wow. And is it, is it like underwear you can only buy at a Mormon shop or is yeah, it just Mormons, regular underwear? That's no, Mormons, it's, you, you buy it at, a, um, the Mormon church has special located stores throughout different regions and you buy your underwear. And what if I walked in with a white shirt and a tie, could I pass? It used to be you didn't have to have an ID card. I don't know if they've implemented. They may, but I doubt they've implemented. And I, I think you could probably walk in and buy it. It's like you get some magic underwear. There's nothing. It, unless you look closely, it really looks like um, boxer briefs, mm. slightly longer boxer briefs and a white T-shirt. Yeah. Um, there's a few markings on it that um, are there specifically uh, to represent religious symbolism but they're so subtle that you could probably overlook them i think from a from a public relations point of view the magic underwear was probably a bad move you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know I mean? yes and no but at the same time i think there's certain things like this if you think about organizing a community things that cause people to feel a part of something oh yeah uniforms absolutely and you got to hide that your uniform right you know, you know so make it underwear why and not it, and yeah. it becomes and amongst mormons right mormons can actually you know Mormons see things like the line in the in your pants about whether or not you're wearing garment. Like, I mean, there's certain ways that Mormons identify each there's other. There's like Mormon dar, or yeah, absolutely, <laughs> more dar, absolutely. <laughs> really? Can oh you, yeah, you can spot a Mormon almost instantly. <laughs> All right. So what? So and they can spot me, right? So. Yeah. Well, but then I still, you know, you're saying I don't look very subvert. I probably still look. You know, I still set off. The Mormon yeah. alarms, yeah. Mormon alarms, yeah, for people. So. <laughs> Let the dogs out. There's a right. Mormon in in the yard. Um, the, now, what do you think about? Was Mitt Romney a flash in the pan politically, or do you think uh, the Mormon Church will, from this point, be a serious political contender? Well, it's not just Romney. Uh, what's his name? The the John Huntsman. John Huntsman, yeah. right? I th- you know, and John Huntsman, I think has a. P- Potential opportunity. I, I don't he seemed think it's like a pretty cool guy. John yeah, Huntsman. and and John Huntsman is not an active Mormon uh, anymore. I don't oh, okay. I don't know how out he is about that. Um, but he's not. Re- he and Mitt Romney are very different in right. their Mormonism. Right. Um, so I I don't know. I don't think. You know the Romney campaign very successfully kept Mormonism off the table. Yeah. There's so much, and and we leftists are so polite that. Um, we accommodated that uh, Even, in a way yeah. that that the right would never accommodate yeah. back. Jeremiah and, Wright was a big issue. Yeah, a- absolutely. If Obama had to answer for Wright, then the the fact that Romney never really had to answer for Mormonism mystifies me. And yeah. I actually am not of the camp. You know, look, I get that there shouldn't be a religious judgment, but I, I do not agree with the idea that religion should be off the table when we're picking a man with as much power as, as the presidency. In fact, right. I, I think we inadequately examine the religious and philosophical beliefs of the people who hold that office. So, mm. for example, uh, I think there's a fundamental conflict in in electing a strong-believing Christian who we then expect to go negotiate peace in the Middle East, right. um, given the religious beliefs 
that Christianity has about the Middle East. Um, there are things like that that I think the philosophy of religion. I actually, so I, I actually don't think. Re- I think religion is a trumped-up word. I actually think religion is essentially failed political philosophy that relies on. Um, a crutch of authoritarianism in God, yeah. um, but left to itself that most religion is really just political philosophy. And I think those religious beliefs are often political beliefs and we need to analyze yeah. those when we're analyzing somebody who's president. I'm halfway through a, a book by Franz Duvall, the primatologist called the, uh, the atheist and the bonobo. Mm-hmm. And it's, very interesting. He's looking at this whole debate about religion and, you know, the, the Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, right. and, you know, that whole anti-God sure. crew. And he makes what I think is a very important point, which is that religion's not the issue. Dogmatism is the issue. And a lot of these anti-God people are just as dogmatic sure. as, you know, any religious figure. And they don't seem to see that they're ju- they're participating in exactly the same behavior that's the issue it's you know it's saying anyone who doesn't disagree or doesn't agree with you is an idiot and you know it completely yeah whatever so my sure. my point is that i i think i certainly agree with you and it seems that friends of all is making an argument uh that that's congruent with what you're saying about religion essentially being about the exercising of power and i you know this whole atheist agnostic um i sort of have finally come to a different understanding i actually think the question do you believe in god is a fund is the wrong question in fact i think it's fundamentally broken um because i think god essentially is a title to a being and if we imagine as most people do that that title belongs to a specific being it would be like asking do you believe in king Uh, and asking do you believe in king is a nonsensical question so because there will be lots of people who will claim the title of king just as there could be lots of people who claim the title of god so the real question is what does that being who claims the title god what would he expect our relationship to be and can i agree with his essentially political philosophy in the way that he's arguing community should be structured um it's gotten me away from this question of does god exist or not because ultimately that question would have to be analyzed in a very different way if a mm-hmm. being claimed to be god you know, one you'd never be able to verify that as right. finite beings you could never verify a god claim if someone appeared and said i am god there's no way anybody could verify that. So it then just becomes a political question of, okay, so what are you asking me to do because you're telling me you're this thing? So it's a, it's yeah, a different I, I don't know how much you know about question. Buddhism, but, but that question is very central to Buddhism, where Buddha himself apparently said, stop calling me the Buddha. I'm not the Buddha. There are many Buddhas and bodhisattvas who there will always be people who are born who have either through reincarnation through worlds or through meditation or through whatever method have have arrived at a point where they see things that most people don't see right that's it that's all there is you know and uh to me as i said earlier that's the saving grace of buddhism that there's no money involved if you want to call yourself a buddhist go right Right. ahead no there's no initiation ceremony right Right. you don't get kicked out you know it's 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 much more a philosophy than it is a religion Um, and i haven't gotten there but i do find myself trending more to eastern 
ways of thinking. Yeah, and Taoism I, I find very attractive, you know, cause, because it's so sort of undifferentiated and abstract. Right. You know, because as you say, like, what are we doing trying to make these things concrete? They're essentially, by their very nature, well, not concrete. Yeah, and uh, look. No matter how powerful we are intellectually, no matter how many more magical skills we may gain, in the end, relationships between beings are are going to always probably work in a similar way as they work now. Like, you're still going to have to persuade people. You're still going to have to interact with people. Mm-hmm. Most communities Trust, are still going to have respect. Yeah, all, yeah. You know, and so that's where the question comes to me now. Um, yeah. Is not whether something exists, but what our relationship is and how do we structure our communities, um, even on a micro scale and a macro scale. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, thank you for opening your your life and your. Thanks for coming by. Refrigerator and your uh, my, your home spark home brewed sparkling water. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, we're gonna go get some lunch. Uh, thanks That's for great. listening, uh, podcast listeners. Cheers. He said, "Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say." You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.